From the 26th of February to the 2nd of March 2013, the London School of Economics will hold its fifth annual literary festival with the theme Branching Out. The festival encourages interaction between authors and academics as a means to unite the different branches of knowledge. This year, the festival includes talks, readings, panel discussions and performances, as well as creative writing workshops and children's events. Here at the LSE Review of Books, we've asked prominent LSE professors to read from their favourite works of fiction, building on the Academic Inspiration series on the website lsereviewofbooks.com. In this podcast, we'll hear readings from Professor of Human Rights Law, Connor Geerty, Centennial Professor at the Gender Institute, Mary Evans, and Professor of Social Psychology at the Department of Media and Communications, Sonia Livingstone. My name is Conor Geerty, and I'm Professor of Human Rights Law at LSE. And I'm going to read from Kafka's The Trial, a book which not so long ago people thought of as really a kind of nightmare about what the future might be, but with all the terrorism laws we've had and changes to our own procedures here, hauntingly close to home. Kay must remember that the proceedings were not public. They could certainly, if the court considered it necessary, become public, but the law did not prescribe that they must be made public. Naturally, therefore, the legal records of the case, and above all the actual charge sheets, were inaccessible to the accused and his counsel. Consequentially, one did not know in general, or at least did not know with any precision, what charges to meet in the first plea. Accordingly, it could be only by pure chance that it contained really relevant matter. One could draw up genuinely effective and convincing pleas only later on, when the separate charges and the evidence on which they were based emerge more definitively or could be guessed at from the interrogations. In such circumstances, the defence was naturally in a very ticklish and difficult position, yet that too was intentional. For the defence was not actually countenanced by the law, but only tolerated. And there were differences of opinion even on that point, whether the law could be interpreted to admit such tolerance at all. Strictly speaking, therefore, None of the counsels for the defence was recognised by the court, all who appeared before the court as counsels being in reality merely in the position of pettifogging lawyers. For the proceedings were not only kept secret from the general public, but from the accused as well. Of course, only so far as this was possible, but it had proved possible to a very great extent. For even the accused had no access to the court records, and to guess from the course of an interrogation what documents the court had up its sleeve was very difficult particularly for an accused person who was himself implicated and had all sorts of worries to distract him. A detached observer might sometimes fancy that the whole case had been forgotten, the documents lost and the acquittal made absolute. No one really acquainted with the court could think such a thing. No document is ever lost. The court never forgets anything. One day, quite unexpectedly, Some judge will take up the documents and look at them attentively, recognise that in this case the charge is still valid, and order an immediate arrest. I have been speaking on the assumption that a long time elapses between the ostensible acquittal and the new arrest. That is possible, and I have known of such cases. But it is just as possible for the acquitted man to go straight home from the court and find officers already waiting to arrest him again. Then, of course, all this freedom is at an end. And the case begins all over again? asked Kay, almost incredulously. Certainly. The 
The real attraction for Joe was a large library of fine books, which was left to dust and spiders since Uncle March died. Joe remembered the kind old gentleman who used to let her build railroads and bridges with his big dictionaries, tell her stories about the queer pictures in his Latin books, and buy her cards of gingerbread whenever he met her in the street. I'm Mary Evans, Centennial Professor at the Gender Institute at the LSE. I'm reading from Little Women by Louisa Olcott because Joe Marsh taught me the importance of being alone to read and the horror of being interrupted in the middle of those wonderful stories. The dim, dusty room with the busts staring down from the tall bookcases, the cosy chairs, the globes, and best of all, the wilderness of books in which she could wander where she liked made the library a region of bliss for her. The moment Aunt March took her nap or was busy with company, Jo hurried to this quiet place and, curling herself up in the easy chair, devoured poetry, romance, history, travels and pictures like a regular bookworm. But like all happiness, it did not last long, for as sure as she had just reached the heart of the story, the sweetest verse of the song, or the most perilous adventure of her traveller, a shrill voice called... Josephine! Josephine! And she had to leave her paradise to wind to yarn, wash the poodle, or read Belsham's essays by the hour together. Is this Mount Olympus? asks the unbelieving stranger. Is it from these small, dark, dingy buildings that those infallible laws proceed which cabinets are called upon to obey, by which bishops are to be guided, lords and commons controlled, judges instructed in law, generals in strategy, admirals in naval tactics, and orange women in the management of their barrows? Yes, my friend, from these walls, from here issues the only known infallible bulls for the guidance of British souls and bodies. This little court is the Vatican of England. I'm Sonia Livingstone, and I'm reading From the Warden by Anthony Trollope, a section in which he indicts sarcastically the Jupiter and its editor, Tom Towers, by which, of course, he has in mind the Times of London and the power of its editor. Here reigns a Pope, self-nominated, self-consecrated, I and much stranger too, self-believing. A Pope who, if you cannot believe him, I would advise you to disobey as silently as possible. A Pope hitherto afraid of no Luther, a Pope who manages his own inquisition, who punishes unbelievers as no most skilful inquisitor of Spain ever dreamt of doing. One who can excommunicate thoroughly, fearfully, radically, put you beyond the pale of men's charity, make you odious to your dearest friends and turn you into a monster to be pointed at by the finger. Oh heavens, and this is Mount Olympus. It is a fact amazing to ordinary mortals that the Jupiter is never wrong. With what endless care, with what unsparing labour do we not strive to get together for our great national council the men most fitting to compose it? And how we fail, Parliament is always wrong, look at the Jupiter and see how futile are their meetings, how vain their council, how needless all their trouble. With what pride do we regard our chief ministers, the great servants of state, the oligarchs of the nation on whose wisdom we lean, to whom we look for guidance in our difficulties? But what are they to the writers of the Jupiter? They hold counsel together, 
and with anxious thought painfully elaborate their country's good. But when all is done, the Jupiter declares that all is naught. Why should we look to Lord John Russell? Why should we regard Palmerston and Gladstone when Tom Towers, without a struggle, can put us right? All is wrong, alas, alas. Tom Towers, and he alone, knows all about it. Why, oh why, ye earthly ministers, why have ye not followed more closely this heaven-sent messenger that is amongst us? To find out more about the LSE Literary Festival and to book free tickets, go to lsd.ac.uk slash spaceforthought. To read our academic inspiration essays, log on to lsereviewofbooks.com. I'm Amy Mollett. Thanks for listening.